Hello, Dark Valley listeners. This is Jennifer Amell bringing you an impromptu but fascinating conversation between myself, Jane Borowski, and her co-hosts on Invisible Tears, Amanda and Drew Bedard. With season one finished and out there, I felt like we needed some kind of debrief. And if you haven't finished the entire season, stop what you're listening to right now, go back and finish the season because there will be spoilers. This needed to be a rather long conversation, so I'm going to deliver this in two parts. In part one, we discuss Jane's feelings about the new information around all of these cases. We talk stab patterns and new ways in which these cases connect to each other and to Jane's case. We also get to ask Jane some pressing questions about persons of interest that have arisen during this investigation. And last note, if you haven't listened to Invisible Tears, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts, and it's also on YouTube. Go on over and leave them a five-star review. Okay, I hope you enjoy. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. I am so pleased to introduce you all to a woman you may know pretty well, Miss Jane Borowski, and the rest of the Invisible Tears team. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jen. Hi, Jen. Hey, Jen. If you'd like to introduce yourself, that would be awesome. I'm Jane Borowski. I'm host of Invisible Tears. And a lone survivor of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Our listeners are very familiar with their story. They've come to love you. And I'm sure they're so excited to hear you in this kind of more casual conversation after the end of Dark Valley. And then who else do we have here? I'm Drew. I am Amanda's husband, and Jane was my babysitter growing up. I am a co-host and a producer for Invisible Tears. Hey, everyone. I'm Amanda. I'm Jane's co-host and another one of her producers and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm also her life coach, and um, she loves to call me her ride or die, which I love it. Jane and I are extremely close. We're almost kindred spirits, so pleasure to be here. Very true. And listeners might be familiar with you too, Amanda, because you made an appearance in, I think, two episodes of Dark Valley. That is right. I forgot about that. Yes, I was also a production assistant on um, Dark Valley. So the field work was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, it was fun. I'm sure we'll get into uh, various experiences the three of us had together during production. (laughs) For people who don't know what Invisible Tears is, can one of you give me a synopsis of your show, what listeners can expect? So Invisible Tears is uh, the first couple of seasons really talks about my life, my struggles after my attack. Talk about a lot of things that uh, victims go through um, after something traumatic. Me and Amanda do some mental health uh, episodes and then Now we're more gradually going into more talking about cases that are cold or forgotten or and unsolved and uh, really giving family and people the opportunity to be a voice for the voiceless. Great. Thank you. So in order to find Invisible Tears, you can find them on any platform that you get your podcasts. That's Apple, Spotify. Uh, are you guys on YouTube? Do you have each episode on YouTube? Yes, we do. Excellent. All right. So plenty of places. No excuse not to listen to Invisible Tears. So gone over and subscribe. Excellent. So Dark Valley has been out since like the beginning of September, at least season one. I mean, we've gone through all eight victims, including Jane's, you know, survival story. You know, we've gone through the ins and outs of of these women's abduction sites, the the times of their abductions, where they were walking from or traveling to. Um, yeah, we've been all through it. We've even been through a lot of discussion about different persons of interest, which we will discuss here today as well. But I wanted to ask you guys, like since Dark Valley's all out, you heard it all, and you've had a little bit of time to digest. Are there any like big takeaways um, from the production? Are you thinking about things any differently? Have you gotten any clarity about anything? Or have, have things become even more confusing? I personally have loved the way you have told the story 
about the victims, talked about them in their lives and, and the way you have inserted their families into the story and, and their families had an opportunity to share with people what their loved ones was really about. I, I also have to say, I love the way you said that I shared my survival story. I always call it my attack. And uh, I love the way that you just said that. And I, I'm definitely going to start using that. So my survival story. It's not my, it's, it wasn't about my attack. It was about my survival story. I love that. Love that. Thank you, Jane. And it's weird because I was just looking at some unused audio, like conversations between the two of us. And we were talking about this word victim. Yeah. But you're communicating that the word victim never really felt right. And it felt like even damaging at times. And it wasn't until you adopted that kind of moniker of survivor that your attitude around it changed. Do you still feel that way? Oh, absolutely. When I, when I labeled myself a victim, I felt almost like I was defeated. Uh, and labeling myself now as a survivor, I feel more strong. I, I feel stronger and I feel more empowered with my life. Yeah, that makes sense. And we were talking about it in the context of the other women, too, who lost their lives. Amanda, what about you? you have any <laughs> newly formed thoughts or opinions? Well, I think just generally speaking, I definitely mimic a lot of uh, Jane's feelings, you know, about Dark Valley. I absolutely love the way that you composed Dark Valley. I remember specifically listening to the first episode and really just being blown away. I love the way that you composed it. I felt like I was in and there in each episode. Um, as you were going through the story, you also really um, did a fantastic job speaking compassionately about everyone, which I thought was really refreshing and really good. And also the amount of information you were able to dig up that we did not know I love, we, and I, th I think we all love it. Um, I absolutely love all the information, the additional information that you were able to, to dig up. You're a great investigator. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, both of your checks are in the mail for all those compliments. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jen. <laughs> Drew, do you have anything to add? For me, it was uh, providing a lot of clarity to some of the, you know, body locations, uh, the time of day in which um, the angels disappeared um, or were last seen. There was a lot of uh, clarity, a lot of new facts that were brought up that, you know, somebody that's been following the case for as long as I can remember, you know, ever since early childhood, it was great to finally get a lot of, uh, get a lot of the facts known um, that were pre previously maybe not really known. And it was able to, kind of think about not only Jane's attack, but every other attack in a different light, you know, with that clarity. Uh, Linda Moore's case in particular, we had always kind of theorized that he definitely, you know, the perpetrator possibly had a hunting or fishing background. And I had already, I had kind of theorized that he, you know, the perpetrator didn't see Linda Moore when he was on the road, but possibly from the river behind her house. And we had talked about that. And then sure enough, you were able to find in, I believe it was the police report, that there were some twigs and dirt found at the crime scene that most likely came from the perpetrator and most likely was from out back behind the house. Yes. Yeah, that was um, some pretty new information that came up. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned that again, because there was a lot of information in that and those reports that I was able to get like kind of far into the production or like research process. I totally wish I had that information like before kind of crafting these, um, you know, narratives, but, but yeah, there's a lot to unpack that is like kind of new to us. And on that note, I definitely want to talk about the autopsy reports for a lot of the victims and the, the kinds of wounds that they sustained. So we've talked a lot about this V-shape pattern. I think it was like a pretty abstract way to describe the wounds that these women sustained. I mean, Quite a few of them were found when their remains were unfortunately skeletal and we couldn't really get a good idea of what had happened. I think um, of the remains that were discovered um, after some time, Bernice Cordemanche is the only one that they know had been a stabbing death. The other ones they kind of 
speculate that they were stabbing deaths. Um, and then we have bodies that were found earlier. You mentioned Linda Moore, who was, you know, unfortunately attacked and killed in her own home. And her husband found her, gosh, like minutes after, like 15 minutes. Yeah. So we have more information from that crime scene. And then we have more information from Barbara Agnew's crime scene because she was, I guess her remains were dumped when it was a snowstorm and her body was preserved because of the cold temperatures. So so what came to light due to this person I was introduced to was uh, an attorney in Maine. She provided me a lot of information that the police should have provided in a FOIA request, but chose not to for whatever reason. So in those reports, it seems like most of the victims that you could tell and they weren't, you know, decomposed too much to be able to like come to conclusions had sustained some superficial stabs to the chest and abdomen, but most of them were marked by at least two cuts to the neck and either a simultaneous or post-mortem eviscerating wound to their abdomen. And that is what connects these cases in law enforcement's minds. And that's a lot more substantial a pattern to me uh, than this like abstract V-shape thing that we've been talking about. I'm thinking that's the way that they finally connected Kathy Milligan with the other cases because that's how that they found her, if I'm not mistaken. Because I often wondered, she was kind of further out. How did they connect her with these other cases? with so many years apart. And uh, I think that was the initial piece of the puzzle that that put her, that connected her with the Connecticut Valley cases. Yeah, that's a good point. I think in tackling the victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer, it was like, well, who, who do I include? Because no one's officially been connected. Like there's been names mentioned together by media and we kind of know from behind the scenes conversations with law enforcement that they're, that they're thinking of these cases as connected. But I felt, you know, for the years of research and production that I was kind of like stumbling in the dark, like, I don't, I didn't know, I didn't know if I should really hold like one narrative that like, these are all separate cases, right? Like how much merit to give that. I think I'm now more firmly on the side of like, yes, they are connected. And that was chiefly due to, to those stab patterns. That and, and speaking, I think with Dr. John Philpin, mm-hmm. he, he's been involved with all the cases for so long. And, and I think uh, just hearing him say, yeah, there's, there's many things that connect all these cases together. Yeah. We had conversations when we were trying to envision this like V shape. We're like, well, is it is it the cut like a hunter might make on you know a, a deer or something like to field dress it? And I think maybe that that way of thinking still applies here because like if you shoot a deer and you don't, it's not like a killing shot like say you missed the heart or or something like you're you're gonna walk up and make sure to put the deer out of its misery and make sure that that like like the adrenaline doesn't flow through the meat because you don't want the meat to spoil or whatever i'm sorry i'm talking about it in these terms (laughs) it's it's so gross (laughs) um but but that cut like the the killing cut and the evisceration it still reminds me of that like field dressing process even more so than actually the random stabbings. Um, that was one of those facts that when you brought that up, that led even more credibility to having a hunting or some sort of farming background in which he does process, uh, you know, process animals. Um, because, yep, a slit of the jugular and then the evisceration cut is, you know, the steps for field dressing. Yeah. And, and Jane, in terms of your own experience do you think that that pattern was like he was trying to carry out that same pattern or was it like so different because you're you guys struggled quite fiercely i think it was so different he didn't have intentions on originally stabbing me and trying to kill me there i think that was um that was a last minute thought he wanted me to go with him we've gotten a lot of 
questions or comments about why he would have attacked you there instead of like knocking you out and taking you elsewhere and why he left you alive. Do you have any insight on that? Well, for one, I wouldn't go with him. I fought. I think I fought a lot more than he thought I was capable of fighting. Two, we were on a main road and there was at least one vehicle that drove by. So I feel like he was um, afraid that another vehicle was going to eventually drive by. He left me for dead. He he didn't think I was going to survive. Not that many stab wounds. I mean, 27 stab wounds. He stabbed me for quite a while. So I, I don't think he he thought I was going to survive at all. So that's why he felt comfortable with leaving. Yeah, and maybe. I think that, that comment about you know it being a relatively busy road is important too. Like in my mind, he, he lost his temper and did something he didn't intend to do and got lost in his ritual, I guess. And then like snapped out of it and was like, Oh my God, anybody could drive by uh, and, and got out of there pretty quickly. Yeah. And he still had that adrenaline to kill. And, and, and I think in his mind, he needed to do it, whether it was there or, Obviously, he wasn't able to get me to go with him. And and I think he realized that after a little while, especially when I ran. And I think he, he needed to um, fill that that whatever adrenaline thing he had going on in, in, inside of him and, and needed to kill me right then and there. So some other questions from listeners have been, did he know when you guys first had that struggle in your car? that you were pregnant. Yes. Yes, he did. Because one of the first things I said was, please don't hurt me. I am pregnant. Right. Uh, So he did know. He had to have known when he pulled in and I was walking back to my car because I was very visually pregnant. (laughs) I was seven months. So it was uh, pretty visual. I don't think I've ever asked you this question, but what were you wearing? Maternity clothes. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was wearing a maternity shirt that had a big old pink uh, teddy bear on it and um, uh, maternity stretch pants. And sneakers, right? Oh, yes, my sneakers. Nike sneakers I just bought that I really, <laughs> really wanted so bad. And they took it all. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Never saw them again. All in evidence. <laughs> okay, so there's no chance that he just like didn't know. And there was never any hesitation that you saw, right, after knowing that you were pregnant. Oh, no, that didn't face him one bit. That didn't, there was zero reaction to that. Yeah, that didn't matter to him. Like he knew what he was going to do and no matter what. Yeah. Any more comments on stab patterns? So through the autopsies, you have figured out that there actually wasn't a V-shaped stab pattern. Did we, did you really, you ruled that out? So I didn't see autopsy pictures and I only saw one, oh, what do you, like illustration. What do you call it? Like in autopsy reports, there's like the outline of the person and then they mark where wounds are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and label the kind of wound, like laceration or blunt force or whatever. I only saw one of those diagrams for Barbara Agnew, which was pretty illuminating. Where do you think that information came from? Do you think it came from just media or or somebody writing it in an article? Or did did you actually find it somewhere where a police officer or someone in authority had been quoted saying that you mean the v-shape yeah i think it was reported pretty early on like when the task force was created the media was describing it as a v-shape pattern i believe there was one officer don't ask me for what you know department but i believe there was one officer who described it as v-shape but then there was another one who was like you know, in terms of Bernice and Eva Morse, uh, they, they weren't killed by stabs. They were 
killed by slicing type wounds. And that's consistent with the, I guess, autopsy information that we received. So yeah, I don't know if, if it was like purposefully vague. That seems likely, in my opinion, since, you know, law enforcement, especially in that area, isn't known for releasing many details. I That's why I just kind of find it funny that, I mean, that would be a detail only the killer would know. And for somebody from authority to release that information, to me, would be very unprofessional. And that's why I kind of question, you know, was it just false information put in the newspaper somewhere? You know, did somebody quote unquote say that to a reporter? Kind of wonder how that information kind of got around. Because in my opinion, if that was if that was true, you would really think that they would keep that under wraps where only the killer would know about that. Yeah, I mean, I had that read too, Jane, that it was like holdback information about the where the wounds were and what kind. Uh, But it's interesting to me that they chose to like, lead the public astray (laughs) by describing it in, in a V shape. I don't know. Maybe I'm not fully understanding it. Or I I don't know. (laughs) Kind of interesting. Mm hmm. You know, the reason that's important is, you know, it will lend a lot to like a profile of the killer. How ritualistic was he? Was he trying different methods of murder? You know, since there were so many intentional cuts to the necks of these women, I think I mentioned in the show proper, should we be looking at cases like strangulation cases? Did this guy have a fascination with women's necks? And then it it also leads me to think about that very early 1968 case, Joanne Dunham. Are you guys familiar with that? Yes. For those who don't know, that was a young girl. I think she was like 14 or 15. She was walking to the bus stop uh, when she was abducted and found kind of near even worse and Betsy Critchley, but years, years, years and years earlier in 1968. And she had been strangled and she had, ugh, it's horrible, but she had duct tape around her head covering her mouth and nose and asphyxiated that way it's like is that an early murder of the same perpetrator it's interesting that there's no cuts uh on joanne denham as far as i know but i don't have her autopsy report do you guys have any more information on that case not a whole lot uh apart from when we first looked at it we were like okay the the timing being before everything, it was in the same vicinity, but you're right, but the fact that it was a strangulation, no cut wounds, we did kind of say we didn't feel like it was part of the Connecticut River Valley case. Yeah, but now I don't know. But yeah. This is an interesting, as, as you were talking about it, Jen, it is an interesting point to just sort of sit with um, in that, I mean, Jane, your attack in 1988, you approximated that he was how old? Uh, mid thirties. Yeah. Mid thirties. So if we sit, so if we say just for argument's sake, he was 35, take it back to 68. Yeah. Too young. Possibly. I mean, could be a reason why there weren't stab wounds. I mean, it's just, it's interesting to think of. I think whenever I always thought about, um, the Joanne Dunham case, and I haven't dove really deep into that case. I, simply thought because of how much earlier it occurred and knowing the age range of who Jane's attacker was, I had sort of discounted that case as being a part of the Connecticut River Valley cases. Yeah, all valid points, I think. I really don't know. Um, I think the the one piece of compelling information to connect it to the same perpetrator is the area where her body was found. Right. But that could be a coincidence. Yeah, because I believe that was, it was Charlestown, right? Or North Charlestown? I think it was Unity. Oh, okay. All right. Yep. So just for just for the listener, so right above North Charlestown, where I was talking, that, that is the Unity line, correct? Yeah, well, you guys know better than I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's my understanding. Yeah, uh, yeah we did, um, Crawl Space Media did an episode on Joanne Denham's case for our podcast, Missing. And, you know, I kind of 
guest appeared to to talk about maybe similarities with the Connecticut River Valley killer, but I just don't know. Like I can't can't decide on that case. Additionally, one of the things I teased, I guess, at the end of Dark Valley is that we've ha- we've seen all of these additional cases that have been connected by this attorney in Maine and in conjunction with uh, working with uh, Dr. John Philpin. And that's, I think, I think tw- 10 to 12 additional cases, uh, a few in Maine, a few in Massachusetts, uh, a couple in New Hampshire. And I really haven't di- like dived too deep into the details of those cases to like give my opinion on it, with the exception of um, Jessica Briggs. Do you guys know about her case at all in Maine? Oh, it was, it's been a long time since I read her case. Um, I haven't heard of her case, actually. I remember hearing about it. It wasn't too long after your attack, Jane. I think it was 89 that that happened near Portland. Portland, Maine, it was on a pier. And according to my source, her body was in almost identical condition to Barbara Agnew. Like, same amount of cuts to the neck, same kind of eviscerating wound, same amount of stab patterns. She said it was eerie uh, how similar they were. So in their mind, they're thinking that whoever killed Jessica Briggs had killed at least Barbara Agnew. And then we can connect Barbara to probably your attack, Jane, and Heidi Martin, potentially, since it was so close. I think with with Briggs, it's especially horrible because her young boyfriend, who's also a teenager at the time, was convicted of her murder and spent, I want to say, like 25 years incarcerated, in my opinion, wrongfully. Um, But his attorney has... Like he he's out of prison, uh, but his record, his conviction still stands. So she's working on expunging his record. But at any moment, like this person, this man is living in like fear that the police are going to show up at his door and take him back into custody. It's a very, uh, it's a scary situation. It's scary. Yeah. So hopefully some clarity happens in that case. And, and his name is Anthony Sanborn. Hopefully he gets acquitted formally and he can move on with his life but my goodness so yeah that's that's what i hope to dive into should we be greenlighted for a season two which is not not uh officially a thing that's going to happen yet but we are working very hard to make that happen so i want to pivot a bit and talk about persons of interest because this is pretty divisive I admire all of you guys in in thinking about these cases because you all have pretty open minds and you don't get attached to one person of interest over another, per se. And I've tried to maintain that same spirit in my own research and investigation. Uh, But I want to bring it to a discussion of Larry and Claude Moulton. (laughs) Let's hear your thoughts. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. I think that they they were very much known in town as the bad dudes. Uh, They did not have a very good reputation whatsoever around Claremont. Uh, A lot of people suspected them. I think some of the stuff that you dug up fits, but some of the stuff is missing. I still, I keep feeling like, okay, yes, they are very good persons of interest, but to go to that next level and to say, I really think that, you know, um, they could possibly be suspects just keep feeling like I need more. I think a lot of this stuff is circumstantial coincidence. You know, looking at someone and looking at the small town of Claremont today versus back in the 80s, uh, it was a very different place. Uh, It's grown a lot, um, especially with um, 
restaurants and stores and strip malls and all that, it's grown tremendously. Uh, now, if you think about back in the 80s, it was a smaller place. It was a very different place. So for them to connect to so many different things back in the 80s doesn't seem all that suspicious to me. I, I just feel that there's uh, there's just not enough there. I believe they've done some bad stuff. Uh <laughs> a lot of bad stuff, but just uh, to connect them to these cases, I, I'm not excluding them, especially with the information that you came forward with that you have found, um, but I just can't include them yet in my mind. Yeah, I think my biggest thing was um, they definitely pointed the fingers back and forth when it came to Mara Murray. But there was no mention of any of the victims within the Connecticut Valley case uh, did either of the brothers really speak about. So I was like, they were so open about Mara's case and trying to point the fingers. Why wouldn't have they have taken that opportunity at that time to also point the fingers at the Connecticut Valley killings? Both you guys took my points. <laughs> it's literally that. the And so the only other thing I can actually add to the conversation about them is that do I believe that those brothers have done bad things? I I do. I don't know if they're necessarily Jane's bad person. Um, I'm actually a little bit more convinced that they are more Murray's bad person. I And I agree with Amanda with that. I mean, they definitely uh, fit more into Maura's case than they would the, um, than they do the Connecticut River Valley cases. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my follow-up question. Like, do you think it's possible that Moore's case is connected to the Valley cases? I am asked that so much, like so, so much. It's really hard without them finding Moore's body or her remains or finding Mora. It's really hard for me to say, yeah, I think it could have been connected. I think finding Mora or Mora's remains is really key and, and, and is really um, that piece of the, the, that missing piece of the puzzle to really um, connect the cases to get, you know, hers with, with the Connecticut River Valley cases. I don't know. Sometimes I think, ooh, you know, there's there's some similarities there. Yeah, I mean, I feel similarly to all of you guys, all great points that you brought up. I thought I would be remiss in excluding them from the narrative since there was so many uh, points of coincidence or confluence or whatever. But yeah, I, if I had to give a, a percentage, I'd say like maybe 15 or 20 percent like they did it <laughs> or one of them did it or whatever. But yeah, I, I there's not enough there. And especially with trying to include Mora in the Connecticut River Valley cases, I think you're absolutely spot on, Jane. There's just not enough information to make that call. And I love that we can have these conversations and not speak in absolutes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's been a few times that you have you have called me and and brought up like the brothers there and and you were like, what do you think about this? And look, I found this out and I found that out, and I kind of had to, you know, <laughs> not in a bad way, but I kind of had you really, I had to reel you in a little bit and say, now Jen, you got to open, you got to, you know, really look at this stuff with an open mind. I appreciate that. Chain. I needed to be reeled back in. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, when you're doing like investigative work or research work, like you, you you spend the time and stuff and you get excited when when things start falling into place and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And when I call you, it's it's like with that same level like of excitement it's like am i on to something jane tell me i'm on to something and you're like well <laughs> hold your horses lady. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and I totally can understand the excitement because, I mean, before I had that bad experience with the whole Nicolau thing, I know that feeling of, oh, my God, this this fits. I'm excited. This fits. Oh, I'm getting more excited. Oh, this fits and this fits. And 
And um, I, so I totally get that. I, I, I know what that feeling is like. So I'm more guarded now. I'm more, okay, I, I really got to, uh, and I, I think I do that with almost everything in my life now. I just, I have to look at everything with an open mind. And especially with all this. I think that's very important in a variety of situations uh, to recognize that there's nuance in every story. There's always two sides or more. <laughs> um, and to not like polarize yourself too quickly. Yeah. The one thing I do like about both Invisible Tears and Dark Valley is we have been able to correct the Nicolaus story and explain it why. So now when you go online, if you type in the Connector Valley serial killer, Nikolaus' name isn't the first thing that pops up like it did two years ago. You know, and now since we've been able to correct that, seeing that change that none of us actually made those changes online, somebody else did. So we're like, okay, at least we got that point across that it's not him, still unsolved, still have to find the person who did this. Yeah, and that was one of the one of the main goals we had discussed like before writing or producing or researching anything. It was like yeah, exactly. You know, for I mean, no offense Jane, but I didn't take you at your word that Michael Nicolo had nothing to do with it. Like I I did that work. I spoke to the journalists. I even yes. had, you know, a discussion with Lynn Marie Cardi, which was fascinating. <laughs> but uh but yeah, I, I think it was an honest review of the facts. Were there facts or was it just conjecture? Was it wishful thinking? Was yeah. it shoddy research? Was it someone with an ulterior motive? Um, I think all of those things, all of the above. But it was it was quite a moment for, for me in uh, producing this series where, you know, I'd had several conversations with John Philpin on the phone and I like kept hammering him like why isn't it Nicolau like is there DNA is there you know whatever and he couldn't really reveal I'm a, I think there was probably some forensic ruling out there's no confirmation on that but unequivocally said that Michael Nicolau is not the Connecticut River Valley killer and that was a really important moment for me at least in the investigation side of things I was so happy to hear that when when I listened to that episode. Oh, my God. I was like, yes. He was like, let's put this to rest. Michael Nicolau did not do this. And uh, I was so happy about that. I was like, yes, finally. Finally, someone of authority came forward to say, no, it wasn't Michael Nicolau. Because even though... All this information was sent up to the AG's office up in Concord. None of them would come forward to actually say, no, it was not Michael Nicolau. It was always, we're, we're looking into it. We're looking into it. We're looking into it. So to hear someone like John Philpin, Dr. John Philpin, say, no, it was not Michael Nicolau. It was such a relief to me. I, I, that was my high, that was the highlight of the whole episode that I heard. Because <laughs> I was like, yes, now people can finally believe it. Because I still, you know, I, not as much now, but for 10 years, I still had people coming up to me and, you know, oh, I thought that was M Michael Nicolau that did that to you. I thought it was solved. Uh, I thought the cases were solved. And no, no. They're still unsolved. Yeah. And that sort of demonstrates the real danger of that polarized thinking, too, on uh, Lynn Marie's part, that she convinced you so well that it was him and then launched this kind of media campaign to basically make her own truth uh, for whatever reason. We don't know. But uh, but yeah, I can drill an entire investigation. So I'm, I'm glad that like at the end of this project, we can say like, hey, we did our research. We found out more about the victims, about what happened to them. We've, you know, posited some people as perhaps uh, being cir circumstantially involved, but nothing is definitive. And I think that's a really important thing to end on because we don't know. Nope, we don't know. Um, and then the final, I guess, piece of this person of interest puzzle is April Stone. Uh, so she is the half-sister of one of the victims, 
who may or may not be connected to the Connecticut River Valley killer. And her name is Heidi Martin. Uh, she was only 16 when she was murdered less than a mile away from her own home. Uh, and she was stabbed, I think, four times and not in the same pattern as the other victims. So April came forward with suspicions about someone close to their family having perpetrated this murder against Heidi and potentially the other victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer, especially Barbara Agnew, because Barbara's body was found less than three miles from Heidi's murder site as well. Yeah. So we have to we have to be really careful about how we talk about this because April is not naming names and we don't want to reveal the identity of this person in case we're wrong <laughs> and we don't want to do anything without her permission and everything. But what was that like for you guys to to hear this information? So I think we all definitely felt like Heidi Martin. Yeah, out of all the random attacks that aren't associated with the Kinnaker Valley killings, we all felt independently that Heidi Martin was the one outlier that could be included in the Connecticut Valley killings that currently isn't considered as part of the grouping. And as far as April's story coming forward, I do remember coming across a picture of the individual she's talking about. Only found it one time online. I haven't been able to find it again. But as far as what he looked like later in life, if you were to, you know, age or regress him a little bit, I could definitely see some similarities between the sketch. So, you're talking about Jane's sketch? Yep. Yeah, we have on file, I guess, a bunch of pictures of this individual through the 80s, 70s, and 80s. And I mean, I, I can't say definitively. I don't know if I have an opinion. I have something to say about that. <laughs> Go ahead, Jane. <laughs> I don't like using that profile uh, picture at all um it's not a sketch it was created when i was incubated by blinking my eyes by slides i imagine i was um you know had some painkillers in me because it was only a couple of days after my 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 attack so it's like I hate using that profile picture because I, I, yeah, there are some facial features that I like to keep, but it's not completely accurate. Like, it's not like it was a, a hand-drawn picture of the person that attacked me. So when people, I mean, I have looked at, a hundred pictures over the past years of people coming to me and saying, this is my father back when he was in his thirties. Do you think this was him? Look at the profile, look at the, the comparison with that in the profile picture. And it's just like, I mean, yeah, you can almost um, compare other pictures to that profile picture, but I hate using it as a, you know, as somebody coming forward and saying, I saw the profile picture. I thought it looked exactly like my uncle. I think he did it, you know, and then the investigation goes on about the family does this, this private investigation on this poor man that's totally innocent just because he happens to have a, a facial feature or two to this profile picture, you know? Yeah, I, I can imagine. And, you know, we've talked about this at length too. Um, but I don't think the burden for proving who did it should be on you, Jane, and your memory or the sketch you did. Because as you mentioned, it was yeah, in less than ideal circumstances. Uh, I think you said intubated, right? Like you had a tube up your nose or down your throat or something? Down my throat, yeah. I was on an incubator. And, and I don't want to really um, say anything bad about them doing this profile picture because th the composite picture, because I understand that, you know, for one, they didn't know if I was going to live or die at that, that moment. And they really needed something to put out there for people to look for. Uh, they really needed something to put out there. Um, for a person of interest. 
And so I get that. I totally get that. But I don't like using it. That's that's a real danger of, you know, like armchair sleuths and podcasters or whatever, just like pointing the finger wrongfully at people and like it can ruin lives. Oh, absolutely. You know, perfect example. Look at Steve Moore. Right. Yeah. Linda Moore's husband. I'd love to like talk briefly about a lot of questions that came in, mostly from like the Moore Murray stands, (laughs) like. Uh, people who are really, really invested in that case and have been looking at the Moltons and others as being involved in that case. They all want to know if you've seen a picture of either Claude or Larry and is it the guy? And there's so much nuance that goes in to that answer. Like, first of all, we can't really find a great picture. (laughs) And even if we did, uh, it wouldn't mean anything. (laughs) And I've never seen a picture of them, either one of them, ever. I have zero idea uh, what they look like, how tall they are, what their weight is, if they have hair, they don't have hair. I I have no idea what these guys look like, none. Yeah. So I, I don't think that's a worthwhile avenue to go down. Exactly. I can't imagine how many people have come to you, Jane, and been like, look at this picture. Is it this guy? Yeah. That's got to be so many infuriating <laughs> over time. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of information about this individual that April has you know raised suspicions about, uh, a lot of which we didn't really have time to discuss in the first season of Dark Valley. If we get to do a season two, that's going to be a main focus, not just the person of interest, but Heidi's case because I think it's fascinating and tragic. Um, you know what happened to that town. Uh, there was a person who was acquitted of her murder. Was that Delbert Tallman? We discussed him briefly, but you know he was like a, a drifter guy. He had a low IQ. He was very suggestible, and the police scooped him up really quickly and tried to pin this murder on him. And thankfully, he was acquitted uh, during a trial. But yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack with that. I I can't really get into details about the person of interest, but you guys know what I know. We do. I think. (laughs) Yes, we do. You think dead end or pursue? We'll put it that way. Pursue. You mean pursue with her case being connected with the Connecticut River Valley or her case being pursued with this suspect that April's bringing up? Well, that's actually an interesting distinction. I think absolutely pursue just with Heidi's case. But yeah, let's put that question to you. Pursue in terms of, is this the Connecticut River Valley killer? Very interestingly pursue it. Yeah. Possible dead end, but it's a, it's an interesting alley to go down and just to check out. Cause you're right. There's a lot of smoke there. Amanda, you're silent. <laughs> I am. So you don't have to say anything. It's okay. No, no, no. I'm just, um, so I'm trying to think of what to actually publicly say and what not to, because th- there's a little bit of a moral dilemma that I'm having because I haven't been able to speak with April directly. Generally speaking, I think that April has brought up a lot of really good information that needs to be explored in regards to Heidi's case. And I think that it does not hurt anything to make sure that Heidi's included in the conversation. Very diplomatically (laughs) said. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I, my opinion is that full steam ahead. Let's uncover what we can uncover. Certainly nothing precludes this individual in my mind. Um, and I'd say more smoke than the molten angle, in my opinion. I would agree. I have to say that, you know, April, for one, has to become an, an amazing advocate for Heidi. She's the reason why I'm amping up my advocacy for myself. Uh I saw how much she was advocating for Heidi and I was like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not even advocating that much for myself and I really need to. I think what she has dug up has been um, very good information that she has dug up. Um, 
she's she's done her homework. She's done her um, research. And, and I just, April's amazing. Like, that girl has been through so much. And she's just so inspiring to me. And she's amazing. Like, amazing. And, and I really, really hope, I so hope that Dark Valley can continue to do her story. It would be very sad if, if you weren't able to. She deserves uh, to be heard. Uh, she's being Heidi's voice and, and oh my God, she's like screaming out loud, somebody please hear me. And, um, you know, she, she needs to be heard. And uh, Heidi's story needs to be told. And, and I don't think anybody could tell it any better than April. Definitely agreed. I just want to note, like, the kind of bravery it takes to come out publicly with this feeling that she's held so close to her heart for so many years. The secrets she's had to keep. I mean, it's eaten her up. Yeah, I mean, she would be the, the first one to describe what that feels like. Uh, but similar to your bravery, Jane, like you don't know who's listening. It is incredibly brave to put yourself out in a public way, knowing that your attacker has never been identified and has never been caught. I don't think I would be able to be that brave, honestly. Both of you are inspiring. Thank you. But I love the dynamic between you and April. <laughs> we didn't get to play any of that audio, but I sure hope we can. Yeah, it was amazing meeting her. Uh, I, I was so happy to meet her and hear her tell Heidi's story. Yeah. I started crying, so I stopped. <laughs>